Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her series of discussions with Michael Trout with part one of their examination of his second video, Multiple Transitions. All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part two will be released on December 31st. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. We're first going to focus on his videos, and uh, then later we will be focusing on some of his books. So I would like to, for listeners who don't know about Michael and his work, share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He has also written and produced five videos focusing on the unique perspective of babies on divorce, adoption, loss, domestic violence, and parental incarceration. And in fact, these videos are going to be the focus of the first part of this new series I'm doing with Michael Trout. So he comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. 
Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. We're here again, continuing our series with Michael Trout. Michael, welcome back again today. Hello. Yeah, so uh, what we've been doing, listeners, is going through a series of videos that Michael has made over the years, and today we're going to be talking about probably... Michael, correct me if I'm wrong, probably the best selling out of all of them. By far. Yes, uh, the video multiple transitions. And I thought a good way to get us started today would just be to read what you wrote in the front of the booklet. Each of these videos has an accompanying booklet that goes with it that includes the script of the video, sometimes some references um, and some other things, but also just what, what was in your mind and why you did this. So I'm gonna start us off reading that. So the title of the video is, the full title, Multiple Transitions, A Young Child's Point of View on Foster Care and Adoption. Young children who have lost someone very important to them often speak, in quotes, about that loss through their behavior rather than through words. I have been privileged to watch young children under these circumstances for the past quarter century, often trying to imagine what each child would be saying if he chose words instead of stiffening and back arching and sleeplessness and wandering around the house and opening and closing doors. The interactive and affective language of young children is a worthy language deserving our attention and respect. This script prepared for the video, Multiple Transitions, a young child's point of view of foster care and adoption, was an effort to put into words that which is already being said by young children whose mothers or fathers have disappeared temporarily or permanently. It is possible that I've misrepresented what the young children are saying. It is likely indeed that each child has something different to say Yes, of course, but it's also possible that we adults who are so dependent upon words for communication might overlook or misunderstand the interactive and affective language of young children if it is not at some point put into words for us. So this is an effort to make more intelligible for those of us in a position to make a difference what young children would like to say, indeed often are saying with the foster care or adoptive circumstances in which they find themselves. It is my hope that policymakers, clinicians, and researchers and instructors in child development will all find some benefit in this interpretation of the language of young children. And you wrote that in 1997 when this was made. Yep. Yes. So the first video that we had talked about, the gentle transition, is a newborn's view of adoption. Here we're getting into um, what could be uh, foster care or adoption, and we're talking about a young child's point of view as opposed to a newborn baby. So sh could you share just a little about that, how that became your idea for the next video? Because you shared before, you didn't like lay this all out and decide, you know, that, that, that this was going to be a series. It became a series. And it, and it became a series as I experienced myself, at least, if not the whole field, in a world of trouble in one area or another. Some, some way that we had been unable, 
given what we knew about children and given what we knew to do to help them, we'd been unable to help with one thing or another. And by the mid 90s, it was abundantly clear that we did not understand this, what, what some of us were thinking was this unique group of children who, some of whom came from overseas in awful circumstances, but not all. Some uh, in horrible circumstances uh, early in their life right here in America, and then went into foster care and adoption. Um, they were unusual in a variety of respects. The list is huge, but some of the key ones that grabbed our attention were that um, they seemed to inordinately um, be, represent a group of people whose adoptions were disrupted. And of course, for a while there, we thought, boy, we made some bad placement choices, or we've got some really crummy foster parents out there or some adoptive parents who couldn't make up their mind or couldn't stick to it. Um, but after a few years, people started thinking it can't be that there are this many foster and adoptive parents who are lousy at their job or who are just insufficiently committed and are busting these placements. Are th did the children have anything to do with this? And if they do, are they unique children? Or are they just tougher you know, along the very same dimensions as other children we'd experienced who had a kind of a difficult time? And some of us, again, not all by any means, this actually remains controversial to this day. Some of us thought that these were indeed neurologically, as well as behaviorally, a unique group of children. They had been harmed so much that something was very different about their brains, as well as how they loved and accepted love and how they behaved in everyday life. And we should, be re we should remember that we had, when we encountered trauma earlier in Vietnam War veterans, we had absolutely no notion whatsoever that the guys who were coming home to hit their wives or to spend the rest of their lives drunk or unable to work were a unique group of men. We had no idea. So we treated them just like all other guys coming home from a lousy circumstance, that is to say war. In the early to mid 90s, guys were just beginning to come home from the wars in the Middle East and showing similar symptoms. And we were only beginning to understand that their brains had been changed by trauma. Their hippocampi were small, noticeably smaller than other men who had been in exactly the same circumstances, but who had not experienced for some reason that circumstance as a trauma. And so we began to wonder, is there anything about these children that is like these men, who some of whom come back from war changed forever. And that set us on a path of looking at them differently and guiding parents differently, making different decisions, for example, about whether talk therapy was worth a plug nickel with these children, or even whether um, parents getting tougher or contrary-wise getting not tougher, uh, letting the children do anything 
whether any of that was any good. And we began to try some new and in some instances sort of crazy things to get through to these children and to try to get the placements to stick. And because of all that, we found ourselves in a rough spot. And that's what I tried to address in this film. Yes. Yes. And what was it, you know, you had been working with parents and children many years and with um, parents and babies, had studied with Selma Freiburg. You know, at this stage, you had a lot of experience. You had a, a lot of training. And what was it that first had you thinking, wait a minute, something's, you know, something about what I'm trying to do here is just not not working because I think there's a tendency often to just uh, instead of look at maybe I need a different tool or or something say oh the child's resistant or the parents resistant or you know I just need to do more of the same harder stronger whatever or or maybe I'll just you know decide this isn't a group for me and refer them on I'm very curious what was going going on in your mind well, one of the things that um, Selma taught us is when to give up. But she also taught us to not give up when there was something we had to bring to bear. And we had learned, most of us, that under the right circumstances, even very angry or resistant or hurt parents could be helped to find a way to love their children. And if that happened, the child would respond. With these parents, these parents of what I came to believe was a unique group of children, when they came to my office or I sat in their living rooms, there was a look in their eye that I had never seen before. And it wasn't just a look of damage, as in, um, I've been so hurt myself when I was a baby that I'm having a difficult time now. I knew that look. This was a different look. This was a look that said, I'm beaten to a pulp. I'm utterly without resource. My husband and I barely talk to each other anymore. We have become split from each other. And you know, here's a crazy thing, Mr. Trout. There are days when we think this little two-year-old is on purpose trying to get between us, my husband and me. He's splitting us. Isn't that insane? No toddler tries to split up his parents. And yet then when I would go to the home and I would see the child run up to me, jump in my arms, sit on my lap, stroke my beard, and tell me that his mommy didn't feed him that day, or maybe I could come home with him, or he's sure going to be looking forward to when daddy comes home because daddy's nice, but mommy isn't. I began to get an idea that these barely verbal children might actually be doing that very thing of splitting up parents. But that's, that's evil. That's insane. And so if that were the case, as I was beginning to think it could be, there had to be something about these kids that I'd never seen before. And I just did not want to give up. And I don't think that's because I'm made of better stuff than others. I think it's just that 
the the alternative to failing was absolutely clear. These parents would, at the very least, break this placement. At the worst, break this placement and never take another foster child or adoptee for the rest of their lives because they had just seen into what some call the fiery depths of hell. Not meaning that they looked at the child and seen hell, but that they'd seen, they'd seen and felt things that felt to them like hell itself. And they did not want to ever go there again. Just get him away from me. So we had to come up with something different. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, a lot of what you're you're talking about is, well, in a way, how hard and even kind of scary these kids seem to to parents. Um, but the video is all about the child having a voice of their experience. So it's not, you know, it's you, you later did make a video from a fo foster adoptive parent perspective, but at this video, we're still looking at the voice of this child amidst this. So there, there was still, because I guess why I'm bringing this up is because I began to, in those years, um, when we had so many internationally adopted children coming into the country from absolutely horrific circumstances, you know, it seemed like it was a, a lot about saying these children are sociopaths and, and these parents are in some ways being victimized by these monsters. And, and we, we have to use these like very, uh, I, there was things like you must get them to completely comply, take away all control uh, almost like you think of a prison population, which of course doesn't work. Um, but but and, and that it's hope. You know, I, I talked to people that said, you know, uh, these are severe attachment disorders, and if they're not treated by three or four, these children will be sociopathic. They will kill. They will murder. They will be, you know, even serial killers. Um, but yet, that's not that's not the voice you give the children in this video. Well, but, you know, we were, while well, we didn't know, some of us were suspecting that that could really be true, that if yes. these kids were not treated, they were going to do awful things. Yes. And so there's only one way, from my perspective, there's only one possibility then that exists, and that is to discover where is the hurt? How deep is it? What brand is it? And can it be, can it be introduced to parents who might still have enough empathy left in them that it could be aroused again if they only understood not just that the child was hurt, but understand understood the specifics of the child's hurt. Why something as lovely as holding or caressing or stroking or saying I love you could be for this child the worst possible thing for him to experience or feel. How, how could that be? And is that possible to understand in a way that would actually evoke empathy in the parent and make him want to do it until the child gives in, so to speak? Mm. Mm -hmm. And can you combine that with some of the other things that also turn out to be needed particularly with older children, five or older, which is a lot of structure, 
going to be combined in a way that doesn't give all the balance to structure, which many parents misinterpret to mean harshness and discipline. Can empathy and structure be combined in a way that will actually allow the child to feel not only loved, which he doesn't want to be, but safe, which he does want to be. Yes. Yes. In the hope that later he might actually get interested in being loved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you sat down to start this script and begin this project. And, and so talk, talk to us about some of what's in this video. Well, when, when you say I sat down, I, I did indeed sit down, <laughs> barely. I mean, the, the, the context for this was that in everyday practice, I was being besieged with people, as by the way, I happen to remember you were, uh, because yes. you had a residential program. Yes. Being besieged by calls from parents all over the country. I somebody told me that their second cousin, third removed, told them that you know something about these crazy kids, mm. or these, these certain kinds of kids. Can we come see you? And of course, I had to say that would be absurd. First of all, I don't know that I know a lot more than others, but maybe I do. But I don't know that I can help you if you drive out here from Idaho and spend a day or two with me. I. I had, I was being besieged by these kind of requests, but also by these kind of the, the stories that came with those requests. And they were building up and building up such that when I sat down, I was flooded with mental images of children and with stories about their behavior and the struggles of their parents to get through to them. Um, so sitting down was, in, in very much a context of feeling pressured, but also feeling incredibly rich with examples. Yes. So I just began to just try to describe the kids at first. I, I wasn't, I didn't go straight to the script. I just started writing to myself, writing stories, writing uh, ideas, writing possibilities. If a child, has a long history, now going, by long I mean now going for months, of stepping on the heads of babies in the foster home, such that the agency has already figured out that they need, need not place any more children in the foster home younger than the target child, the child that is this unique child. If the child is doing that and he is pulling out his own hair, around his ears and his eyebrows. And if he was found the other day with the dopiest look on his face while, while um, standing next to a kitten who was no longer living on the front porch, if, if a child could, could be experiencing that, what in the world was it that was the point? Was he in fact just evil? Or was he making a point? And if he was, what could the point possibly be? And you know what? I'm ashamed to say it took a little while to consider the po this possible point, which I came to believe was the point, which is I hate 
vulnerability. I hate it in myself. I hate it when I want you to love me and I can't stand the thought that you would love me because I know what will happen next. You'll hurt me or throw me away. And so I despise that thing in me that is weak and small. Oh, there's something weak and small. My foster baby sister lying on the floor over there. I think I'll go stand on her head. And for the child, this particular kind of child, there's no reason not to. And there's a very good reason to, in fact, do exactly that. To hurt things that make the child think of himself. Think of his smallness and his weakness and his vulnerability. And he, he wants to eradicate it from the planet. So that's the way I would approach each behavior. Mm -hmm. What's the point? Why does this actually, in some crazy world, why does this actually make sense? Why does a child who had a wonderful dinner and had a, had a foster or adopted mother who says, we have lots of food in this house, sweetheart. You can have seconds and thirds. You never need to worry about food in this house. And yet, night after night, they hear a rumbling in the kitchen at three in the morning and there's the child with a whole chocolate cake that was in the freezer somehow pulled down from the top freezer and he's sitting on the middle of the floor eating it, eating it frozen. Now, how can that possibly make sense? Mm -hmm. It looks completely insane. And yet, could there be a point? And could the point have to do with that other point we just covered a minute ago? Would it be better to feed myself frozen chocolate cake at 3 a.m. than to allow you to give me food at, a, at an appropriate mealtime and let myself feel like I need you, therefore? Yes. You know, that brings me to the opening line of this, and we're going to be um, pl playing that opening line uh, for the listeners. I want to talk with you about what it feels like getting ready to be adopted. When you were a little kid, who's already had about a hundred mothers. Well, it's a crazy idea, I know, because the child probably didn't have a hundred mothers, but it sure feels like a hundred mothers when you're short and vulnerable and needy and hate being needy. And the, every time you lose a parent, you hate being needy even more because now it's 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 abundantly clear what's going to happen every time and you can't do a thing about it. So that child is in kind of a, a difficult spot. He can't make people be different, but he can't make himself be different either. He can't make this roller coaster stop. All he can do is put up with it and get tougher and tougher and tougher each and every time. And of course, the, the, the thing that's clear to the child, even though he'll never tell you that, even if he does have words, is that the culprit here is himself. He'll, what he'll say if he has words is everything is their fault. My parents don't love me. They won't feed me. They don't take care of me and so on. But what they feel is that they're damaged. It's their fault. Yes, and that brings us to uh, the next segment of the video that I want to play. Kids like me, see, don't have families of our own. Because there's something wrong about us. 
And I guess when I hear that, Michael, I'm thinking, how could you not think that? I mean, I don't think we realize that uh, often when we're working with the kids um, and we need we need these reminders. But how could you not look all around you and see, you know, others have their families? What's going on here with me? A pretty lost sort of feeling for a child to have. And there's really no way to process it when you're one or if you're three. And the only way such things like that get processed in kids who are not as damaged as these kids is through relationship with the, with the things grown-ups say and do and with their being available. But for these children, those data, what my daddy says to me, the, the fact that my mommy feeds me, the fact that my daddy says he loves me, those things are not acceptable as data to counter the idea that there's something wrong with me or that I'm safe. Those those are not acceptable data. They are for other kids, they're not for these kids. And, and talk about why that is. Well, it's just, to these kids, it not only sounds stupid, which is why they, they'll, if they're old enough, they'll scoff at it, but it sounds dangerous I mean, if I let if I let your words get inside me when you tell me that you love me, or when you tell me that you want me to come sit next to you and help you cut slice the tomatoes or something, if I let that get inside me, I'm going to feel something that I can't stand feeling, which is soft. I've already learned because I'm not stupid. I've already learned that I need to be tough and resilient and ironclad and all of that really amounts to uh, I've made myself into somebody that doesn't need anything and if I could have pulled that off by the way I wouldn't be so so miserable but I didn't quite pull it off so I'm in both camps and I'm just miserable you know sometimes um in a therapy session I will have a child that says you know, don't touch me while extending their their arms or, or another part of their body towards me. And I always feel like that's such a visual representation of the utter torment inside. I don't want you, I want you, I don't want you, I want you. I, I, I want to believe that this could work and I, I want to reach out to you. I don't want to reach out to you um, with that really sort of paradoxical presentation. Yeah. And the only data that can be allowed in to counter or at least contribute to that argument is a parent who says, well, and by the way, I mean says in behavior more than in words. Well, give it your best shot, kiddo. But here I stand. Here I stand right in front of you. I'm not going to take everything you've got to dish out. I won't let you hurt me, for example but I'm gonna take whatever else you got and I'm gonna still be here. So give it your best shot. And how do we, how do we prepare parents to, to be able to be that person for these kids? Oh my gosh. 
You think that wasn't the, the question I asked myself a thousand times? Can't well, you just tell us, all the listeners, a couple things to do, and that'll get every parent ready for this? <laughs> in fact, when I was writing uh, the book, The Jonathan Letters, I, I took it upon myself to engage in, in that question with a lot of parents who were making it, who somehow got to the other side. I really wanted to know, what was, di- was there something different about them? because I was just as brilliant with them as I had been with all the people that I failed with. So if it was my brilliance that did it, <laughs> something very inconsistent here, it seemed to be something about them. And frankly, I, you know, while I'm, I'm not the sort of person who would put a lot of stock in this, if I didn't see it in, in actual research, a lot of the answers I got had to do with people's faith. And I'm not sure if that was mostly about real, real belief, it may be, or was it about um, being involved in a community that gave them a lot of support, whether it was an old idea that just like their faith came to them from their grandmother, so did their resilience and, and their own parental toughness, which says in effect, yeah, my kid is horrible, but He's not as tough as I am. So I, th- I think faith has a lot to do with it, but I'm not sure if it's, if it's just about religion or if it's about a bigger view of faith. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's, there are people who just, because of their own life circumstances, um, either have greater access to empathy in general Although I'll take a pause and say, I find that notoriously empathic people, people that other people would say are soft and loving, sometimes are the first to collapse in the face of one of these kind of children we're talking about. So it's not just nice people that can make it. But people who have access to a depth of empathy, maybe because they remember something maybe because they remember something about how they felt one time, that for some reason they can connect to how they imagine the child feels. So I think that's a contribution. And then of course, the old standby that I believed in forever, uh, a characteristic of not only all parents who make it, but I think all therapists who who are especially exquisite, which is curiosity. There are parents who simply want to know more. They, they don't just get offended by, well, they get offended by behavior, but they don't get pushed away by behavior because they want to know, what was that? Where'd that come from? And when they ask that question, uh, figuratively speaking, they actually want to know. They're kind of thinking, I bet that did come from somewhere. I wonder where it is. Those are the sort of parents who would watch their child slam doors all day long and somewhere along the way would say suddenly, oh, I get it. If you can control doors, you can control coming and going. Mm, Means you can control whether the door is being slammed in your face or slammed at your butt as you're being kicked out. You can control all sorts of comings and goings of yourself and other people 
parents like that, I think, get that way, not because they're unusually bright to start with, although they certainly are, but because they're very curious. So that's about what I know. That's about the sum of it, of what separates parents who make it with these kids and those who quite understandably, I think, collapse in the face of it. Hey listeners, I have some exciting news for you. The book, Raising the Challenging Child, which has been co-authored with Debbie Reed and Wendy Lyons Sunshine, is available for pre-order and we want to tell you where to get it. Please go to our website, RaisingTheChallengingChild.com, for full details on how you can pre-order from your favorite bookseller. I know a lot of you are therapists and parents and really wanting to get the concepts of attachment theory and everything that we talk about in our podcast into practice practical nuggets for parents that you work with, children that you work with, even your own family. So we think this is just what you're gonna be looking for. The book is filled with easy to implement, research-based, family-tested strategies. We hope you'll go out and pre-order today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.